You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, The Patron Saint of the Vocally Challenged. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you a little bit about science. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, I'm sure that you have heard that there's a great concern about greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in particular. Now, I'm not here to get into the global warming debate. I'll let you decide on that. But there's no question that the largest source of man-made carbon dioxide is our use of fossil fuels, you know, to drive our cars, heat our homes, you know, and run just about every electrical device under the sun. And the second leading producer is no big shock either. Carbon dioxide is released during iron and steel production. But I was surprised as to what the third largest producer of man-made carbon dioxide was. Do you know what it is? Here are your choices. Is it one, aluminum production? Two, ammonia production? Three, cement production? Four, municipal waste combustion? Or five, zinc production? That's in alphabetical order. Again, what is the third largest producer of man-made carbon dioxide? Is it one, aluminum production? Two, ammonia production? Three, cement production? Four, municipal waste combustion? Or five, zinc production? And as always, I'll let you ponder over the answer to this question, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Patron Saint of the Vocally Challenged. Now, I thought I'd use this opportunity to announce that I'm giving up my career as a science teacher to pursue my lifelong dream of becoming a singer. So what qualifications do I have? Absolutely none. I've never played an instrument, and my wife tells me that I listen to really awful music. But I have to tell you, I sound pretty good in the shower. Anyway, in this day of talentless celebrities, I think I have a really, really good shot of being successful. Now, of course, I'm just kidding around here, but there was one woman, a woman named Florence Foster Jenkins, who made a career out of really bad singing. Now, I'll play you a few snippets of her talent a bit later, but for now, just take my word on it. She was really, really, really bad. So first, let's start with a little background on this woman. She was born Nasina Florence Foster on July 19th of 1868 in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Her dad, Charles Dorrance Foster, was a lawyer, president of a local railway, director of two turnpike companies, and, most importantly, had controlling interests in the Wyoming National Bank. Now, you're probably thinking, Wyoming, Pennsylvania doesn't seem to go together. Well, it's not Wyoming as in the state of Wyoming. It's Wyoming as in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania. Now, with all these jobs and all these positions, his real money came from his father. You see, his father died in 1878 and left Charles an incredible fortune. 
His daughter Florence, who is the subject of the story, was first introduced to the piano at a very early age. Now, supposedly, she gave her first public recital in Philadelphia at the age of eight and was so good that at one point she played at the White House. Now, when Florence turned 17, she decided that she was going to go study music in Europe and after that become a professional musician. Now, that may have sounded like a great plan, but it was not what her father had in mind. And when dad is paying all the bills, dad makes all the decisions. Like many stubborn teenagers, Florence rebelled and simply left home. And that's when she eloped with a man 16 years her senior, a guy named Dr. Frank Thornton Jenkins. And of course, that's where the Jenkins comes from in Florence Foster Jenkins. Florence's dad was furious, and he immediately disinherited her from the family fortune. So the money is gone. The marriage between Dr. Jenkins and Florence was very short-lived, and about the only thing that Florence got out of the marriage was her husband's last name and, sadly, a bad case of syphilis. Without a husband or a rich father to support her, Florence was forced to live in poverty, making just enough giving piano lessons to survive. Then, on September 29th of 1909, kidney disease took the life of Florence's dad. And while death is sad, Florence was lucky in a sense, and that's because dad had placed her back into his will. His estate set up a trust that was split equally between Florence and her mom. Florence apparently never divorced Dr. Jenkins, so there was a clause in the will that specifically forbid Dr. Jenkins or any other husband that Florence may marry from gaining control of the inheritance. This meant that the two women were set for life, and Florence was on her way to social prominence. So almost immediately, Florence and her mom packed up and moved to New York City. Now, the real trick back then to making a non-notable like Florence into someone of importance was to become active in women's clubs and similar activities. And believe me, this was something that Florence just jumped into wholeheartedly. For example, she served as the director of the Euterpe Club. She was vice president of the National Roundtable, director of the New Yorkers Club, historian for the National Opera Club, and the list just goes on and on. In other words, her social calendar was filled to capacity. Then, in 1917, Florence made the bold move to start her own club. And believe it or not, it had 400 members at its peak. She named it the Verdi Club after the great Italian opera composer Giuseppe Verdi. Of course, a woman of wealth and prominence needs a handsome gentleman, you know, someone like me, by her side at all of these outings. Florence found her knight in shining armor in a British-born Shakespearean actor named St. Clair Bayfield, who just happened to be seven years her junior. They were married in a non-recognized ceremony on August 16th of 1909. The two attended nearly all social engagements together, but believe it or not, never lived under the same roof for a single day. Of course, since it wasn't a legal marriage, their relationship eventually fizzled out, but Bayfield functioned as her sole business manager until the day of Florence's death. All the while, Florence never gave up on her dream of a career in music. The only problem was that she had injured her arm shortly after leaving her first husband, you know, and that dream of becoming a great pianist was out of the question. Instead, she turned to a life of singing, and she was able to hire, you know, with all that money, she could hire some of the best 
voice coaches around. In 1912, Florence made her first public appearance as a singer. Now, before I go any further, I should tell you that no one knows for sure if Florence could sing well when she was younger or not. She may have been able to sing as, you know, as well as the best in the business, but there are no recordings from this time period. Everything that's known about Florence and how bad she sang was recorded when she was in her early 70s. And again, I'm going to make you wait just a little bit more before I let you hear how badly she sings. I have to say that Florence played it smart when it came to her public performances. Unlike other artists that travel the country, you know, and appear in a different town every single night, she kept her appearances to a minimum. And by making tickets scarce, she became an in-demand performer. She played in exclusive venues in Washington, D.C., Newport, Rhode Island, Boston, Massachusetts, Saratoga Springs, New York, which is near me, and of course, New York City. Each engagement was preceded by an announcement in the papers. And then after a performance, the reviews did appear in the newspapers. And surprisingly, they were typically positive in tone. And when they weren't, they were just plain vague. And my guess is that this was done to avoid offending Florence. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The only known recordings of Florence were made at the Melatone Studios, and they were initially pressed so that she could sell them as souvenirs to her friends. Florence was very, very happy with the recordings, and she was convinced that she was as good as any opera singer of the day. Now, I do want to mention at this point that one of my students, a ninth grader named Maddie, she is the daughter of two opera singers. So when I started writing the story, I couldn't help but ask her in class if she knew it. Not only did she know the story, but she knew some of the songs. And she begged me to play one of them at the beginning of class one day. And I just played a little bit, and the kids were laughing. So let's take a brief listen to one of her songs. to admit that I know absolutely nothing about opera, but I am quite certain that was awful. Here's another one. (laughs) 
so are your ears bleeding yet? Uh, I'm not quite sure if that's singing or screeching. Amazingly, these records, which were 78s back then, sold incredibly well, and that was mostly because of how bad they truly were. RCA issued the complete set of her recordings in 1954, and believe it or not, they've never gone out of print. Of course, the format, you know, record, cassette, CD, A-track, whatever, you know, that has changed as, you know, has the name of the collection, but the musical contents have always remained the same. A review of her records in the newspaper promised that spending the $2.50 for her recordings would give, quote, more of a kick than the same amount invested in tequila, Zubravka, or marijuana, and we ain't woofing. That's the end of the quote. What is most shocking is that the demand for Florence's performances went through the roof. They skyrocketed. And as a result, she decided to rent out the prestigious Carnegie Hall in New York City. Now, her pseudo-husband, St. Clair Bayfield, cautioned her not to do so. He thought she'd be, you know, just totally embarrassed by the whole thing. But that didn't stop her. The performance was scheduled for October 25th of 1944 at 8.30 p.m. Ticket prices ranged from $0.60 cents for a balcony seat to $3 for the best orchestra seats. Now, to give you some idea of what that is in today's dollars, that would be about $7.50 to $37, which really isn't that bad. Now, as I said, Florence was more popular than ever from the release of her records, and that pushed sales of her tickets through the roof. Believe it or not, the entire venue was sold out. Demand was so high for the tickets that people were offering to pay 20 bucks for a seat. On concert night, the crowd lined up around the block, and more than 2,000 people had to be turned away. With some fans forced to stand in the aisles, it was the biggest sellout in Carnegie Hall's history up till that day. And Florence did not disappoint her fans, you know, if you can call them that. She performed one hoot-hollering concert for her adoring public. The audience, which included the likes of Cole Porter, Tallulah Bankhead, and Kitty Carlisle, did their best to be respectful, and they purposely buried their laughter in continuous applause and whistles. But by the end, it was clear to everyone, at least it was clear to everyone except Florence, that the audience was rolling over in laughter and disbelief. The concert finished with a standing ovation, at which point Florence came out for an encore. Florence was convinced that she had done a great job, but the press destroyed her in the reviews the very next day. Now, Florence showed no outward sign that she was upset by these reviews, but those close to her claimed that she was crushed by the sheer nastiness of the critics. Five days later, Florence suffered a heart attack while visiting a music shop, and then on November 26, 1944, just one month after her performance at Carnegie Hall, Florence passed away. She was 76 years old. A will was never found. Her pseudo-husband, as I like to call him, Bayfield, expected to inherit her estate. And, you know, he was able to provide witnesses to the fact that she had made this promise. But with such a big pot of cash involved, you can be sure that distant family members just started popping up out of the woodwork. These were family members she had absolutely no contact with. So, of course, the whole mess ended up in court, and her estate was valued at approximately $100,000. That would be about $1.2 million today. 
In the end, the judge awarded Bayfield $10,000, and the remainder, from what I can figure out, was distributed to 15 of her second cousins. In bringing this story to a close, I will leave you with perhaps the most quoted statement accredited uh, to Florence. She said, some may say that I couldn't sing, but no one can say that I didn't sing. That's the end of the quote. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. American Family Cereal presents Let's Pretend. That commercial for Cream of Wheat is from the October 9th, 1954 broadcast of the Let's Pretend Children's Show. Each episode was an adaptation of popular children's stories and fairy tales. This particular episode was Hansel and Gretel. Cream of wheat has been a staple on U.S. breakfast tables since the financial panic of 1893. There was a small flour mill in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and it was running low on operating funds. It was basically on the verge of going out of business. That's when their head miller, a guy named Tom Amadon, suggested that they try selling a porridge that he had been making for his family. The owners of the mill, who really had nothing to lose at this point, agreed to let him package some of this porridge, which was made from farina wheat meal, and they sent it along with a shipment of flour that they were sending to their New York broker, Lamont, Corliss, and Company. The product was an immediate hit, and of course the broker requested a shipment of the new product. The business grew so fast that demand soon outstripped the capacity of the Grand Forks mill. So the decision was made in 1897 to move to Minneapolis, Minnesota. This placed them closer to their suppliers, but also gave them more economical freight rates. I found an 1896 print ad that said, quote, Try cream of wheat, the new breakfast food. It is unrivaled in rare delicacy and flavor, is almost pure gluten, and therefore especially helpful and nutritious. A great thing for invalids. And that's the end of the quote. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call news of the weird past. Now before I begin these little tidbits, I should tell you they all have one thing in common. They're all about imposters of some sort. And our first story is dated April 14th of 1934 where it was reported that a Los Angeles woman named Mrs. Maxie Jones admitted after 38 years that her supposed sister, Mrs. Maxine Williamson, was really her daughter. The two had toured the country in a vaudeville song and dance act named Maxie and Maxine. Not exactly sure where they came up with that name. To understand how this deception came about, we need to rewind our clocks back to 1896. At this time, Maxie was married to another man named John Donald. And of course, the marriage went sour, and in a day when a woman had few, if any, marital rights, John Donald just threatened to walk out the door and take their daughter Maxine with him. 
Mom, as you can imagine, couldn't bear the thought of losing her only child, so she changed her last name to Marshall, posed as Maxine's older sister, and then started a new life without her husband. Then, in 1905, Mom received word that John Donald had been killed in an avalanche of snow. So with Mr. Donald now out of the picture, Maxie married an Alaskan electrical engineer named Charles Jones. Sadly, he died in 1914. The widow continued her charade as the older sister until a few days before this 1934 story was printed. That was when she learned from her brother, Watson Coburn, who was at the time the sheriff of Hotchkiss County in Colorado, that her first husband had not died in that supposed avalanche. Instead, he was only recently killed by a horse in December of 1933. Since the couple had parted ways in 1905, Mr. Jones had somehow amassed a fortune of about $100,000. That's about 1.6 million buckaroos in today's money. And he left it all to his daughter Maxine. So mom was forced to admit after her 38-year deception that she was really the mom. This way, her daughter was able to inherit her dad's estate without any complications. The story did report that the two were very happy in their new, openly honest relationship of mother and daughter. Now, our second story took place in Chester, Virginia, and is dated February 13th of 1947. It is the story of Lucky the dog. Now, Lucky was a big black and brindle shepherd, and he had great love for his owner, Brandon Steed. Now, when Steed was sent off to war, Lucky took good care of Brandon's four-year-old daughter. You know, when she would curiously wander near the busy road in front of their house, he would push her back. And one time, his daughter really did disappear, and it was Lucky who rescued her. But then Lucky himself disappeared one day. The family offered a reward, and he was returned. But Lucky was not himself. He no longer seemed comfortable in the home, and the Steed family was puzzled by the change in his behavior. Then, when Dad Brandon returned from his stint in the Marine Corps, Lucky did not seem to recognize him. It was very odd. Then, Brandon received a tip to check out another dog on a nearby farm. And when he did, that dog just came running right up to him. It turns out the Lucky that was originally returned after he had initially disappeared was not Lucky at all. That was an imposter. So Lucky was finally back home and quickly settled back into his normal routine. During the day, Lucky drove around with Brandon as you know his work was being done on their farm. Sometimes he was inside their pickup truck, sometimes he ran alongside it. And that is when Lucky ran out of luck. Uh, Brandon lost control of the pickup and he wrecked it. Brandon had some minor injuries, but sadly, Lucky the dog was killed. Our last story for today is dated October 20th of 1964, which reported that a 19-year-old co-ed at the University of California at Berkeley, her name was Candy Hughes, and she crashed an all-male smoker by posing as a guy. To do so, she placed her long brown hair under a male wig, she applied some razor stubble with theatrical gum, and she wore a pair of trousers, a baggy sweater, and sneakers. The article points out that her measurements were 36, 25, 36. That's something you would never see printed in the news today. 
and that she was able to hide this fact with what she termed, quote, redistribution by ace bandage. Candy did this in response to a posting that she had seen outside the university's gymnasium. The sign said, men smoker, absolutely no dames. So she was determined to find out what really happened behind those closed doors. And the smoker turned out to be a disappointment for Candy. She said most of the guys are drunk, many of them were singing loudly, and they were way out of tune. Her recommendation was that other women need not go and, quote, in fact, even the men should forget about them. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but... When telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked you if you knew what the third largest producer of man-made carbon dioxide was. So did you know? Here are your choices. They were one, aluminum production, two, ammonia production, three, cement production, four, municipal waste combustion, or five, zinc production. I hope you chose choice number three, cement production. It turns out that cement production is responsible for 5% of the carbon dioxide produced by man. You see, the main ingredient in cement is limestone, which is basically, uh, you know, the remains of sea creatures like clams, snails, corals, you know, and so on. The carbon dioxide released while making the cement comes from two sources. Since the limestone must be heated up, fossil fuels, of course, are burned, and they, in turn, release carbon dioxide. Second, the limestone is a carbonate rock, which means that it has both carbon and oxygen in its composition. Heat the rock up, and these two elements are released in the form of CO2. With the sudden rise in construction in places like China and India, the demand for cement is growing larger and larger every single day. If you're interested, do a search for an article titled, Building a Better World with Green Cement. It's written by Michael Rosenwald, and it's a really interesting story that appeared in the December 2011 issue of Smithsonian Magazine. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on Florence Foster Jenkins and how badly she sang, as well as our question of the day about cement, listening to our retro sponsor, Cream of Wheat, and of course the news of the weird past tidbits. Uh, the first one was Maxie and Maxine, uh, two, the day that Lucky's luck ran out, and the third one was the girl that posed as a boy. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and, of course, from your local library. 
Now, I have to admit I haven't had any time to deal with this new uh, so-called timeline format of Facebook, uh, which, of course, they changed my page to. Um, but if you'd like to see additional resources, including you know, some scans of the original research documents I use this story, some additional comments I have on the making this podcast, and, of course, some related links, just go to my Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com slash uselessinformationpodcast. That's one word, uselessinformationpodcast. As I said, this timeline format, haven't quite figured it out yet. So if I haven't responded to you, it's probably because I didn't see it. Uh, anyway, if for some reason you'd like to contact me, you can drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. Uh, that's uselessinformation.org. As I mentioned in the past, I really haven't updated that in a long time. Uh, and of course, if you go to the Facebook page, there's a link there to contact me also. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.